make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Sex for smart people. That means you. Oh, hi. Hello. Welcome to Sex for Smart People. I'm just going to assume that everyone else in the world is also sick, so I just want to say I hope you all feel better soon. Oh, oh, Dave, I hope you feel better soon. (laughs) It's Um, okay. Tis the season. Yeah, tis the season. I'm just getting over mine. Um, I am very excited about our guest on this episode. He is Dr. Michael Aaron. He has a PhD in clinical sexology. He works as a sex therapist and psychotherapist. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> credentials. And um, he <laughs> <It's> specializes. <cool. laughs> he, he specializes in such cool things in, in working with sexual minorities, sexual anxieties and dysfunctions, gender and orientation confusion. Um, and as well as working with adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And um, I'm really drawn to his work and that he thinks about the relationship between male sexuality and aggression and the relationship between childhood sexual abuse, trauma, and adult sexual behavior and power dynamics within relationships and society and and all of that good stuff. Hey, you know, school. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to talk to... Michael Aaron about his work and then address some of your questions and then do quickies where we rant about or endorse things. Sounds like a good time. Yeah, it is a good time. Sounds like an episode of Sex for Smart People. <laughs> well, Dave, it is an episode for sec- of Sex for Smart People. Oh, so it's not just a clever name. Wait, I have to tell you. I don't know if yeah. I told you. I thought of, I wrote a pickup line. You wrote one? I wrote a pickup line. Okay. okay. I, I'm, Damn, I'm, girl. I'm prepared. Okay, damn girl, are you literally Jesus Christ? Because I'd let you ride my ass into Jerusalem. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, it's really good. It's perfect. Oh, God. Oh, my God. That's perfect. Okay, <laughs> wait, here's one. Here's one. Okay. Um, this might actually work on me as a thing. Um, okay. This my sister found. Hey, girl, do you want to make a fragile human connection in the vast and unfeeling infinity of a chaotic universe? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah i know i think if somebody tried that on me that, that i would i would go with that i know i might i might be a sucker for that um wait also, i thought of another one what um i'm still working on this one but uh <laughs> but uh it, 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 it's true what you've heard my my penis is called the five loaves and two fishes because this shit can feed five thousand <laughs> I'm, oh I'm trying to think of a whole group of biblical pickup lines and see what happens <laughs> I don't know if the world can handle it, Dave, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty stoned on NyQuil. Apologies. <laughs> well, I'm so glad we went there. Um, welcome, yeah, everybody. Good. Hey, <laughs> sex is smart people. Uh, we're going to talk us about stuff and sex and sex and yeah. stuff. <laughs> and hopefully Dave will feel better soon. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and we're so glad, as always. I know we sound like broken records, but I just feel like we can't ever say this enough that we're so thrilled that all of you are in conversation with us and um you know i'm thrilled that most of you are in conversation about us most yeah i'm kidding it's all, all, all. <laughs> and dave would like most of you to find us on facebook and twitter and for yeah, most yeah. of you to subscribe to us on itunes if you haven't already except for you except for the one of you you know who you are you know <laughs> um yeah you know facebook twitter we have a phone we have we have phone we have telephone you can find that on the on website <laughs> Indeed. And now, on to the episode proper. Enjoy! Hello, welcome to Sex for Smart People. I'm Stephanie, and my preferred pronouns are she or they. I'm Dave, and my preferred pronoun is he. I'm Michael, and my preferred pronoun is he as well. Cool. Michael, thank you so much for being here with us. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. We're super jazzed about this thing. Sure. Well, my pleasure to be here as well. So we always kick things off with the question, what is your relationship to relationships? So it's a pretty uh, broad question, but I think that as a therapist, I'm privy to seeing a lot of different relationships in my office. And I think one important thing that comes to my mind is that there's really no right way or wrong kind of relationship. Um, 
I think there's a few key things that make relationships more effective or better than others, such as trust, communication, transparency, and so on. But the actual way that the relationship looks um, is very varied, and different relationships work for different people. And I think the trouble comes up for most people when they try to force a relationship to fit into some sort of cookie cutter or stereotype kind of mm. thing that they feel is expected of them or something like that. And um, the best relationships are the ones where people are true to themselves. And that can um, take on a look of a myriad number of ways. Cool. And I love to ask, um, what lit this particular fire under you to to be a sexologist and sex therapist and work with people and um, creating intentional relationships? For me, sex is very important. Um, and I, why I wanted to be a therapist was I wanted to be a therapist, but I wanted to focus on something that was very important for me and something that was really... Um, not not readily available um, for people. And I th what I mean by that, maybe that was inarticulate, but what I mean by that is that a lot of therapists really have very little training in sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, they may have their own biases or their own inadequacies or insecurities about sex. So as a result, there really is a vacuum out there for people who struggle with their sexuality or who want to improve an aspect of their sexuality and to get really good help um, in that area. And so it's an important part of my life. I think it's an important part of who we are as humans, but yet there really is a great need out there for professionals who really understand how sexuality plays a part in people's lives mm -hmm. and very few people very few therapists unfortunately are trained in this direction so so for me it was a combination of my own personal interests as well as kind of a void out there in terms of these services being uh, greatly needed mm -hmm. um, for people out there so is there a place um if people are looking for therapy in New York City, around the country, around the world, yeah. is there some sort of litmus test to check to see if the person you're going to is going to be, I, I say sex positive to mean yeah. not going to be judgmental or to help you with a, a full understanding like the one you're talking about? Yeah, sure. So I'm a certified sex therapist. And so if anyone's looking for someone who um, is knowledgeable in sex, I would suggest that they first and foremost look at making sure that this person is a certified sex therapist and they'd be certified by this organization called ASECT. And what they can do, they can go to the website asect.org, they can look under find a practitioner or something like that, and then search geographically for people who are certified. Mm -hmm. um, there's other governing bodies, there is something called the American Board of Sexology, um, it's also very grueling in that you have to be a doctorate. You have to have at least a PhD or an MD, and you have to have certain, also a whole bunch of stuff to have fulfilled. So that's another one. And, um, and I would also, um, so I would, I would make sure that they're at least certified. I would also see what other kinds of things that they've accomplished on their CV, I would read their bio or read, you know, what kinds of things. If they have a blog, a lot of therapists have blog these blogs these days. See what kinds of things they write about. Um, it, I actually went an extra step where I have a PhD in clinical sexology, which is very rare. There's only three programs in the entire country that have that kind of a program, um, and I think that that speaks to the fact that sexology, which I think is a very important discipline really is, uh, has, um, doesn't get much attention and is underappreciated in, in, in our country. Um, there, are, uh, there are programs in Canada and Europe, but only three in, um, in the States. Stephanie, um, uh, do you want to move on to questions now? Or, yeah, or, let's uh, do it. Um, 
Uh, oh, so Michael, we have a very sophisticated theme song for the crowdsource question. <laughs> Ready? Ready, Dave? Okay. <laughs> crowdsource question! <laughs> yeah! I like it. Uh, if we had a video, would, would there be like these those hand-drawn cards or whatever like that, you know? <laughs> oh, the, the, the cue cards? The cue yeah. cards. That would be nice. That was when you yell, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Dave, will you read the crowdsource question for today? Yeah, sure. Um, the crowdsource question is, uh, uh, I've been with my boyfriend for two years now, and we keep falling more and more in love with each other. Overall, things are great, but I've noticed that lately my sex drive is significantly less than what it was when we first got together. He still wants to have sex pretty frequently. I feel like doing it sometimes, but not as much as he does. We've talked about it, and he's okay with this imbalance, but still I wonder, is there something I can or should be doing to keep my level of desire for him where it once was? And so thank you so much to everybody who wrote in responses to this. We're going to read three of them before Michael, Dave, and I uh, riff on this as well. Um, Response number one is, hey, SFSP, longtime listener, first-time writer, I have a response to the person with the high sex drive boyfriend. I'm going to call her a her because I try to use the free female pronoun as the generic one. First, yeah. yeah, cheers to that. First, this is not a major problem. Most relationships encounter these hydraulic imbalances over the years, and as long as they both feel okay about it, it's all right. Second, there are some possible workarounds. They might try to find forms of sex that get him off but don't put any pressure to feel sexual on her a friendly hand job or him jerking off on her while she writes her novel. Maybe they can eroticize and play around with him wanting to fuck her but not being allowed to. If they're comfortable with it, he could have sex with someone else on occasion to let off some of that steam and then come home and tell her about it in a really hot way. But whatever they do, they should not try to brute force this. You can will yourself to do that extra pull-up, but you should really, really, really not will yourself to have that extra fuck. Trying to psych yourself into wanting sex more than you do is a recipe for learning to dislike sex and making your partners dislike having sex with you. So while they should be playful and creative about coming up with sexy solutions for this non-huge problem, they need to both be respectful of the limits of her desire. That means both making sure that she's not fucking more than she wants to, but also making sure she's not feeling bad about it. Sexual desire is like a souffle. It collapses under pressure. <laughs> hey, uh, first time writer, could you could you write in a lot? <laughs> that was pretty good. That was yeah, awesome. Was, was this awesome. also a therapist Dave. answering that? <laughs> yeah. Will you read response number two, Dave? Okay, response number two. It's a natural effect of a long-term relationship that aspects of the relationship will wax and wane. The primary thing is to not panic when these things happen, and it looks like you're doing a good job with this. Being open to your level of desire for him increasing as well as decreasing will help you remain flexible and not get back into a corner of, he always wants to do it, I never want to do it. That sort of thing becomes self-fulfilling and difficult to get out of. Another thing that helps keep fire in a long-term relationship is building a repertoire of games and or moments that really get you going. Ideally, both of you, but since it's your libido we're trying to boost here, we can settle for things that he's neutral about if they really do it for you. Things like power exchange, role-playing, role reversal, and so on will let you step out of your routine and try other ways of relating to each other. You don't say anything about where you fall on the kinky, vanilla spectrum, but any amount of disruption to a routine can get things sparking. Finally, there's evidence to show that a certain amount of going through the motions can actually help you feel the way you're acting. Smiling makes you actually happier, for instance. I'm not saying you should make your life into some kind of horrible charade, just that a week or so of acting as hot for him as you can manage might make you start to feel actually hot for him, at which point you're not faking it anymore. Cool. And response number three is, is this person on hormonal birth control? Sometimes that changes the libido. Hmm. Those are our responses for today. Thank you so much, uh, all of you who who wrote in. Um, Thanks, crowd, for sourcing your questions. Can I dive in and kind of synthesize and kick things off for us? Um, I I really like these responses in conversation with each other, and holy shit, our listeners are wise. Um, I feel for the person who, who wrote in. I mean, obviously, it's so rare to have two people with libidos who are perfectly well-matched and, of course, things wax and wane. I, um, I really like what the first person said about creativity in terms of eroticizing limitations, and yeah. I totally agree that nobody should be made to feel bad about this, but I think, ultimately, I come down on the side that, like, sex begets sex, and, and what the second responder pointed on, I, I think, is, is pretty right on. I, I do think 
you have a choice in terms of how much to prioritize sex and that in a relationship with a sexual nature there's kind of a responsibility to to show up in whatever ways are reasonable or possible and not that anybody should should force it but to to choose or be intentional about putting attention there to thinking creatively devoting time to fantasizing about your partner uh, to put energy into shaking up the routines I think that's all great stuff I mean I think of course there could be you know hormonal birth control can affect things or if um, of course there are maybe maybe something else something larger is is going on but but ultimately while I while I, I agree you shouldn't push it I do think that that just like putting care and attention there is is an important thing yeah I don't know was what there anything in any of those responses Michael that um, stuck out to you as potentially well, problematic or anything no well what stuck out was these are some really damn good responses holler yeah you guys have some really uh, sophisticated re- listeners this is good stuff um you know, I think the first thing, anytime somebody sees some kind of a drop in their desire or anything, or performance, or arousal, kind of uh, template or anything, or the way they, they achieve their usual habits of arousal and so on, I think it's a good idea just to get a go to a medical doctor and get a checkup just to make sure there's nothing physical going on. I mean, with this woman, maybe there's something biological or hormonal. Um... I'm not sure what the age group is. I think it was mid, it was 40s, so maybe there's something going on there. I, I don't. So think that's the, worth. I don't che- think the writer mentioned. Oh, okay. Age, actually. All right. Well, it's still worth checking out. Um, it doesn't hurt. Um, but I think that the reader has really hit the nail on the head in terms of you don't want to force an issue. What one thing that the second person said, what they were referring to is the narrative, and so I I think that there, um, I think that a lot of relational, uh, I think a lot of couples get into these kinds of relational patterns that feel stuck because of these kinds of narratives that take over, and it sort of becomes an identity that they that they just um, grow into, and and so I think keeping things, what all the, re- the, 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 the respondents said about keeping things fresh, creative, I mean there's a lot of suggestions there about role play, about seeing if there's a, you know, um, you know, I'd be curious to know what, are, what what does she want. She says she doesn't want sex that as much. But when she does want sex, what is it that um, she finds stimulating? Yeah. What, what are her fantasies right now? And maybe pay a little more attention to that. Maybe they're, they find themselves in a rut where she feels that his sexual, um, you know, make uh, his love map or what template or whatever you want to call it is being more focused on I don't know but if she still has a sex drive and it sounds like she does maybe the key to kind of unlocking things a bit is to focus on what is it that's really arousing her these days and and paying a little more attention to it yeah that that makes a lot of sense to me um uh, I really I think hey listeners way to go with those responses I think that that's um there's some really wise suggestions, and um, to the person who wrote in the original question, I think, um, um, yeah, I think trying trying the power play or situational play or role play or role reversal or um, uh, uh, is going to um, yield interesting results, even if it doesn't fix the problem, and I'm putting both of those words in air quotes, um, I think that you'll discover some interesting slash cool slash fun things along the way. Um, and um, good luck. I think I think I think this can lead to uh, to to zestiness um, in figuring this out. Yeah, I'd also like to say, you know, when people find themselves encountering challenges, I often try to help people understand that challenges can sometimes be and often are opportunities. Mm. You know, like when we find ourselves stuck, we need to problem solve and be creative to find solutions. And oftentimes, these solutions are the things that we we wish we had a long time ago, you know, so the fact that they're experiencing some difficulty right now maybe is an opportunity to learn a little bit more about themselves that will serve them well in the future. Yeah, totally. it might open up things that they haven't haven't gotten to explore yet. And um, there's two other things that are, are coming to mind in kind of like a burning way for me. I think um, 
I think, Michael, what you were talking about, about shaking up the narrative is so important and so often difficult. And one way that I like thinking about that is that it may be less useful to think of things in terms of like enough or not enough or more or less, but just like, but maybe instead in terms of like, well, what do you need here? What does each partner need and work from that? Um, which then we don't know how great the disparity is of the person who, who wrote in, if it's, if it's a very yeah. large disparity or not. Um, and the other thing is something I really love, um, Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity. It's a, it's a book that I, I really like. Um, I'm curious what you think about that, Michael. Um, but the thing that I love about that book is that instead of saying, like, I think all these suggestions are amazing, you know, like, shake things up, have a new routine, don't get stuck in a narrative, all that stuff. Um, but the kind of holistic thesis that she has is, um, sure, all those things are great. Do them all. Absolutely. But also um, to cultivate a, a checking in with and a remembering that everyone, even and especially those we know the, the best, are, are continually a mystery because the unknown is often the most sexy. And so, like, as well as we know anyone, we can't really, like, take them for granted. And so I think maybe often what goes on when there's uh, this kind of disparity is feeling like, oh, yeah, we know what each other is about, and there's like less mm -hmm. excitement. But if we yeah. can remember, and I know it's not the easiest, but if we can remember that, that there's just so many more, so much depth of stuff to learn about everybody and our intimate partners continually, and that everyone is inevitably a mystery, I think that that's a great mindset to be working from, whichever one of these other paths or ideas you also explore. I don't yeah, know. I think, you know, the book was, is a huge hit, and uh, I think it's because it speaks to a very universal experience, which is the fact that when we start to feel more comfortable and safe and familiar with someone else, it can um, take away a large measure of the mystery and the intrigue that is sexually appealing. I, I think people who've been together a long time, they need to still keep dating. Mm -hmm. I think this idea of dating just you know being something that leads up to marriage or some some kind of long term commitment or whatever people people date when they're getting to know each other. I think dating is um, is a uh, is, is sort of like a, a necessary component of any relationship. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and 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 different things, you know, try a new restaurant, try a new experience, surprise somebody. Yeah, not just shaking things up you, sexually, but shaking things up relationally. Yeah, absolutely. It's very easy to fall into a rut. And and sex is oftentimes, you know, the thing I tell my clients is off, is that, you know, sex is often just the tip of the iceberg and so what that means is a lot of people's difficulties are more global in nature so if someone for example is selfish sexually they're probably selfish in other areas of their life if somebody's very anxious sexually they're probably anxious in a lot of other areas mm -hmm. in their life if you find yourself in a rut sexually you're probably in a rut in other areas of your life so um, you, you know sometimes focusing too much on the sex is sort of like trying to get to sleep by asking yourself, am I asleep yet? Am I asleep? Hmm. You know, you just relax and maybe think about something nice about the day or listen to soft music and you'll fall asleep. So, you know, focusing on something um, with such narrow blinders often creates a lot of pressure and anxiety about it. And so maybe for oftentimes being hyper-focused on the sex is actually hindering people from mm -hmm. having better sex and maybe some of these relational issues of creating surprise intrigue mystery having new experiences experiencing each other in new ways by doing different things um like this dating thing that we're talking about that that will tr that will lead into the bedroom you know and and if people feel like they can see each other with fresh eyes like wow i never knew you liked ethiopian or i never knew you liked jumping off a bungee cord, whatever it is, and I'm suddenly like, hey, I'm having sex with a new person here. Hmm. I love that yeah. perspective. Uh, totally.
Um, are we good to... For falling asleep for good thoughts, by the way, you can always do what I do, which is just to think about um, how everyone who ever lived is dead. It's really <laughs> calming. It's really good. <laughs> sure. You know. Oh, you know? You know, I, I think this, we're getting off topic here, but there's something about sleep, which like is like, oh man, I'm, I'm not going to be unconscious for the next... So I don't know, that speaks to this idea about death, but you know... All the best of us have all been there, so it's not a bad, you know. I don't know. What, hey, listen, if it works for you, <laughs> more power to you. Working is a broad term here. Um, yeah. I'll say back on the idea of uh, of dating that I think, I think this may be something that I said in another episode, but that's okay. I'm going to, probably, you know, it's something that I really like to say when talking about relationship stuff, which is that a reminder that a relationship is something you do, not something you have. Mm, um, I love and that. And a lot thing. of people, I feel like, see uh, dating as the means to an end and once a relationship is achieved the end is reached the goal the goal is, is scored the game is won um, yeah. and now you can relax and mm-hmm. um, I, I uh, and I, I think that that's um, not not the best um, or even let's say most practical perspective to have on this that um, that relating uh, is a constant thing, and that we do, we can get more comfortable with each other, and we can get more comfortable relating with each other or to each other. But that um, that that act of of still uh, relating to and finding out about the people that you're with is going to um, be fruitful. Um, and I think it's a good thing to keep in mind, even if you've been with somebody for years and years. Of remember that you're doing the relationship, not having it. Cheers to that. The next question is. I'm a straight female, married, and in my 40s. I feel very lucky that my husband and I still have sex often, and we still enjoy each other a lot after being together over 13 years. We have an awesome, respectful connection, sexual and otherwise, and we are both pretty happy in life in general. But I've recently gotten honest with myself about a trend with what flashes through my mind when I masturbate, or even sometimes when I have an orgasm with my husband. I think of being raped, sometimes very violently, sometimes by more than one man. I have listened to enough Dan Savage to know that these kinds of fantasies can be normal and not twisted at all, but still it gives me pause. I can't help but think, is there something wrong with me? Are these thoughts self-destructive? The more I indulge these thoughts, the more pleasurable sex becomes. Should I be indulging in them freely, or should I be seeking help? And should I tell my husband about this? If so, how? Okay, so Dan Savage is right. These are very common fantasies. Um, you know, I think going back to what I had mentioned a moment ago about sex is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, anytime we have any kind of sexual fantasies or ideas or fetishes, there's often a some kind of a psychological component to it. Um, sex is, I'd have to, I, off the top of my head, I will say never. I mean, never say never, but let's say rarely is it just stands alone without any kind of like it's just there on its own without any connection to any other aspect of the person and so oftentimes these kinds of rape fantasies have to do with kind of a a, a feeling of wanting to surrender and and uh you know um you know be uh Kind of aggressively handled, where you don't have to be responsible for anything, or um, you know, the person who um, is being sexual with you is 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 not um, pro- is not inhibiting their aggression, and I, I think that there's this kind of psychological aspect to the arousal uh, of a rape fantasy. Um, there was a, a guy, a, a psychoanalyst, who wrote a really good book about sex fantasies called Arousal. His name is Michael Bader. I highly recommend. And he talked about a lot about the kind of psychological component of why certain people find the things that they find arousing. Mm-hmm. That's not to say there's always a psychological component, or to say that I mean, because that could lead us to another area altogether. But um, I think in, in the case of rape fantasies, there is something to be said about why that's appealing. Um, and, you know, whether or not she should communicate it to her husband. You know, I'm always on the side of getting into relationships in a transparent way, you know, being mindful of who you are and being able to communicate it from the start in a relationship. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of shame about sex. 
there's also a lot of fear about how the other person will respond. Mm-hmm. That keeps a lot of people, like, so to speak, in the closet about what it is that they like. Mm-hmm. Um, the ideal is to be able to talk about it, especially since it's not pathological. There's nothing wrong with it. And you never know, he may, be a, he may find it to be arousing himself. Mm-hmm. And maybe he would, you know, jump at the opportunity to be a part of it. Maybe, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, what sounds like we're talking about here is a couple, they've been together for a while, and there's certain things that they haven't discussed. Sometimes maybe um, being able to discuss it in a structured way um, with a sex therapist or something would be very helpful. Um, I think, though, that their lives, her life would be much better um, if she's able to communicate about it in a way that doesn't feel shameful to her. And that whether he can do it on his own or if he has help to be able to understand that part of her and hop on board with the fact that this is something that's appealing to her. If it's not appealing to him, find some kind of way to compromise or get her needs met in a way that works for both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I want to reiterate something that you said at the beginning and just to respond to one of the questions in the email, which is, no, there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> just very clearly, there's there's nothing wrong with this fantasy. It's, it's super common. Sex fantasies are often, um, uh, I, I mean, what society would deem weird. And yeah. probably, I, I'm guessing, if pressed, that... Um, that the that the fantasy element of it is part of it that you don't actually want to be raped in the same way that I have kinks that you know I don't actually want them to be real but it's fun to indulge them in a because mm-hmm. you know the sex brain is can be a complicated twisty thing and it can be super fun but um acknowledging that fantasy uh, that that sex play is a is a perfectly appropriate time to indulge in fantasy um but yeah I think you're right that um you know, there could be repercussions about bringing this up um, because some people are freaked out by this sort of talk. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, I think you'll have a better idea um, to, per- to, the, to the person writing in. I think you'll have a better idea of how he'll respond. But um, mm-hmm. making bringing this up part of a check-in about your sex lives in general may be a good idea of, mm-hmm. of uh, just making saying to him, where are you in our sex life? Or do you have any fantasies? You know, bringing this up as a, mm. in a context of being sexually open and honest with each other might be a good idea. Yeah. yeah, and also, you know, I think this is important to articulate and, and just make clear that having a rape fantasy doesn't mean that the person actually wants to be raped, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, it's a structured, if, if they want to... For consensual some power they, play, consensual consent being the key word. Consensual, yeah. Yeah, for some folks, you know, they have fantasies, and if they try them, they don't really like them. Yep. And they're best as just a fantasy. It's very arousing to masturbate about it, and in real life, it loses its appeal. And you know, then there are fantasies that they want to act upon, but of course, it's consensual in a very kind of safe framework. Mm-hmm. Um. But also in terms of how she can communicate it to him, I would, you know, she could do it in graded steps. It doesn't necessarily, she has to sit down and say, you know, I really want you to rape me or I have this rape fan. She doesn't even, I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure she should use the word rape right from the start. But maybe she could talk about the fact that maybe it may be appealing or she's been thinking it's been arousing for her to be a little bit more rough and and play around with increasing the intensity a bit or if he surprises her um, in terms of when he has sex with her Mm. or she really liked it when he kind of grabbed her roughly around the waist or something Mm. she could bring it up in a way that feels sort of like dipping her toe in the water and, mm. and not mm. really having to go right for the rape aspect. Or giving positive reinforcement to something that's already happened. That's Correct. Yeah, and, and I, also, so. I also think it's so cool, like, I mean, as is no secret, I'm a huge proponent of full disclosure and, and open mm-hmm. communication, and I think... You um, are? <laughs> really? <laughs> Shocker! Um, but I just think it's so exciting 
to grapple with how do I bring this up? What if this freaks him out? Because then what if it doesn't? And what things has he not been bringing up? Maybe he's into parallel yeah. things or not parallel things that you would try because it's good for him and he'd try this because it's good for you even if he's not into it. And I, I just look at this as a potentially really exciting moment and uh, for, for this, this person's connection. But also, Michael, I, um, I love a recent blog post that you wrote um, riffing on the new, newest research about how, I may, I'm going to paraphrase, but um, people who practice PDSM are often more, is it mentally stable? That feels like the wrong term, but then than those yeah. who do not, or some, I, I'm, I'm horribly paraphrasing. I'm wondering if you can talk about that blog post a little bit. I was excited to read it, and I think this well, also speaks to her, is this self-destructive, is there something wrong with me? Yeah, well, there was a, um, a study that was published, um, I think, last summer, maybe June, in a very reputable journal, I forget what it was, something, I think it was a journal of sexual medicine, which is a very reputable journal, it was two psychologists in the Netherlands, and they um, interviewed well over 1,500, maybe, well, maybe 14, whatever, well over 1,000 respondents, both who were self-described as kinky, um, meaning BDSM activity, and those who were not. And they, the, the questions um, were testing for a variety of psychological criteria, and basically the researchers found that the the kinky cohort scored better on a whole bunch of stuff, such as extroversion and um, being less uh, shame-based, having less shame, being more open-minded, being more conscientious. And that's just some of the, some of the criteria there. So some of the d uh, dimensions. And, um, and so this isn't actually the first study that's come out um, that has shown that um, kinky behavior is not pathological. There has been a handful of studies that have come out. There was one um, in Finland that um, basically stated the same thing, that kinky people were not pathological at all and and were quite normal. And um, um, so I think for the longest time, one of the very important thing is that we're seeing changes in the way that the psychiatric establishment sees kinky behavior. Um, it's in still fact, really widespread the, prejudices against it, of course. Yes, sure. yes. And Let I me just research think that's a, flies in the face of that. Yeah, that's a very important. Uh, that's a very uh, important point because I think that the whole kinky BDSM thing is sort of where the LGBT community was maybe in the 70s. Hmm. I think they're about 40 years behind. And, and let me explain what I mean. So in the DSM that just came out in June 2013, the DSM-5, and so the DSM stands for the, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, by the way, there's no statistics there. It's just called the DSM to be sound more official and... <laughs> and scientific. It's not really that scientific. It's just a bunch of folks sitting on committees voting yes or no. Um, and so in the latest DSM version 5, it came out in June 2013, um, they in essence depathologized kinky behavior. So before there was a term called paraphilia. Paraphilia is a term from the 19... 20s, there was this guy, this psychoanalyst, Steckel was his last name, who coined the term paraphilia, which is, um, consists of the, the Latin roots para and philia, as in paranormal, para means above and beyond, philia means love, so this is love that's just beyond the norm, you know, so paraphilia, it became popularized in the 1970s by a sexologist named John Money. Who had, That's a good name. John. He Mike. had a class. He had a class. He taught a class at Johns Hopkins called Sexy Money. So, um, yeah, he used his name to his advantage, and he said a lot of interesting things. Uh, in many ways, he was wrong about a number of things as well. But he was writing in the seventies and eighties, and so he was going by the information he knew at the time, and. 
And so he he came up with a whole kind of lexicon of different paraphilias, dif different kind of fetishes. He named them. There was, you know, I mean, there was hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of philias from, you know, necrophilia, which is, you know, being aroused by dead bodies to... Um, you know, pedophilia, obviously, we know what that is. There's hundreds of philias. And so in 1980, when the DSM-3 came out, by the way, they all come out like about 12 or 13 years apart. In 1980, when it came out, we first saw the, the use of the word paraphilia in the DSM. And there were nine paraphilias. So there was pedophilia, there was transvestic fetishism, which is basically trans, you know, a man dressing up as a woman. There was voyeurism, there was exhibitionism, there was pedophilia, there was fraucherism, which is basically rubbing your genitals against the buttocks, um, and sadism and masochism. And maybe I'm missing one or two, because I forget how many I've already read, have stated off. And then there was paraphilia NOS, which basically meant not, not otherwise specified, which meant every other paraphilia that we could dream of goes in this bucket. And, and the criteria was that this was this kind of sexual behavior that was abnormal or non-normative, and it caused distress, and it was unhealthy, and it's a problem. It's a pathology. So in um, the DSM that just came out, they separated paraphilia. Paraphilia is no longer a pathological term, mm -hmm. and they created a term called paraphilic disorder. The difference between a paraphilia and a paraphilic disorder is that a paraphilic disorder is something that is non-consensual, like a sex offender who goes around, for example, someone who goes around with a trench coat and flashes women and bothers them, that's non-consensual, so that would be a paraphilic disorder. So it's non-consensual, and it causes distress to a person that's not based on societal values. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. Because I could be into something, but because if I told someone, they'd be horrified, mm -hmm. I'm ashamed, I'm in distress. That's path So that would be a pathology, right? So let's say I'm into feet, and I told my wife or girlfriend, or boyfriend, or anybody, that I was into feet, and they're like, oh my god, you're this cretin, and I said, oh my god, I need to go to the psychiatrist, I have this disorder, you would have a disorder because you were distressed by it, mm -hmm. right? Now, the difference is now, is that the distress cannot be caused by societal values or, or, or by societal norms, and that's very significant because most of people's distress comes from social values. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be into drinking urine because society will think it's disgusting. So that is no longer considered pathological. Um, just So that's 2013, just as in 1973 when homosexuality was taken out of the DSM. It was depathologized. That was literally 40 years ago. That's why I'm saying that all this PDSM and kinky behaviors 40 years behind the the gay movement hmm. um, and now 40 years later we're seeing what now 17 18 states have legalized same-sex marriage including Utah of all places hmm. so it's taken that long so I'm saying and it would take 30 or 40 years for someone to be able to say you know what I'm into XYZ and I'm damn proud of it and feel no shame mm -hmm. so um, you know there is a um, a psychotherapist who has done a lot in terms of sexual freedom and sexual rights. His name is Guy Baldwin, and he wrote. He's written many a lot of books, but one book he wrote that really resonated with me is called Ties That Bind, and it's sort of a collection of it's an anthology of different articles he wrote in a magazine. And one of the articles was called A Second Coming Out, and which he described. He's gay and kinky. And so being gay was the first time, coming out about that was a first coming out. Mm -hmm. But then coming out as kinky was a second coming out, and he felt it was as difficult, if not more difficult, than coming out as gay. Hmm. Hmm. For a lot of reasons. You know, you would think that a lot of sexual uh, minorities would necessarily 
because they're minorities themselves would be understanding of each other. That's not necessarily the case. For example, he's a leather guy, so which means that he's a kinky... I mean, it means something different now, but he identifies as a leather, kinky, gay guy. And so, as he writes in the ties that bind, a lot of the gay community doesn't see that positively, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, being the fact that he's gay and kinky is not necessarily mean that he's going to be welcomed with open arms. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, where this woman, back to where this woman's at... Back to where this woman's at, it's going to take a long time for some of these societal shackles to come off. Uh-huh. But in terms of her own personal work, um, I'm here to tell her, and so are you and Dave, to tell her that it's normal. And there are people around her that there are groups of people who understand this and can help her to normalize it and help her to live life in a way that doesn't feel shame-based. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I want to throw in... Two, two extra thoughts. Um, one is just that the world that I would like to see is one in which um, those who have identities and sexualities that are not the, the dominant ones or the normative, that our, our, our collective power is so much stronger than if we're all in factions of, of the, the, the gay or the kinky or the um, yeah. non-monogamous or the... The, the polyamorous or the swingers that just I love what you brought up Michael with that example about the man who wrote Ties That Bind that that, um, that all of these movements are in conversation with each other even if, if on different timelines and then also just another resource to throw out to maybe this person who, who wrote in the question but also um, maybe others who are ha- have uh, fantasies about consensual power exchange but maybe haven't started to explore that yet or even those who have started to explore but just want to read more I really love the new topping book and the new bottoming book by Mm -hmm. Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy and I think that um, that even if you identify as a bottom it's great to read the topping one too or I think there's just there's it's very accessible and there's great stuff in there as it's a great kind of gateway if that's something you're interested in exploring more and I don't need to have well, the, the last wonderf- word. Any other last words on, on this before we wrap up? Well, just as, just piggyback off what you said. The wonderful thing about where the time that we live in now is that there's a lot more information out there. You know, there are websites like FetLife, for example. Right? There's tons of there's ton. I mean, not all the books are wonderful, um, but there's tons of books out there on a variety of topics. Right. Um, and the information is out there online, they're out there in books, and people can um, find it. People can find community, people can find resources that maybe before they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, I say 30, 40, maybe things are escalating quickly because, and they're going to take a lot less time because we have a lot more access to technology and, and as a result, a lot of more information. Mm-hmm. Yay. I hope you're right. I hope you're right, too. Um, shall we on to quickies? <laughs> yeah, totally. So quickies is where we each just uh, rant about something or endorse something, uh, anything we want to talk about. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I want to endorse, um, since last time I ranted about um, how terrible love actually is, I thought this time I would endorse something that I'm really, really into, which is a song by TV on the radio called Lover's Day. Oh, that's um, my favorite song, too. It's so good. Um, uh, you know, it's a song about sex that's joyful and joyous and ends with, a, a, like, a I don't know, with brass clarinet music choir. playing and no, a choir it's singing. choir. It's so um, good. And, uh, and, and I just wanted to read a couple of the lyrics just so you know uh, why the song is so good. Um, Swear to God it'll get so hot it'll melt our faces off. Then we can see the you, the me, beyond mirrors, outside clock. Held naked in the light, so soft, get off. Ball so hard we'll smash the walls, break the bed and crash the floors. Don't, Don't stop, stop, laugh and scream. scream. <laughs> Have the neighbors call the cops. <laughs> Till all the eyes that have seen our fire play. play. <laughs> Can't forget, mark it down, call it Lover's Day. Oh, and my favorite um, lyric of that is, um, a tear apart the apart we seem to think we are. Yeah. Oh, it's such a good song. Oh, and, it's so good. Um, um, it's so exciting and so 
has such a fun, awesome, beautiful uh, rendition of sex in song form, and um, you should listen to it and dance. It'll be great. Yay! Um, Michael, do you want to go or should I? Why don't you go ahead? Okay. Um, I wanna, I'm thinking. I want to endorse this really excellent book that I just finished that I've been meaning to read for a while. But, um, it's called Straight, The Surprisingly Short History of Heter- Heterosexuality. And the author is this historian, Hannah Blank. And she's married to a male-identified person who has a penis, but also an extra X chromosome. And they're to- when they're together, they're frequently mistaken for a lesbian couple, and yet they can still really easily access heterosexual privilege. But she kind of starts... Her way into this is the question of, like, does she check the box heterosexual or what would that mean for them too and so um, she writes about how heterosexual heterosexuality came about as an identity as as late as the late 19th century and the term wasn't even coined until then and um, it was invented to make a case for hetero and homosexual identities as different but equal but of course soon it got heterosexuality got conflated with with normativity and better and right and uh, as opposed to other things which were lower class and mm-hmm. trashy and perverted and mm-hmm. um, I, mean, I always love learning more about the intersection between sex politics and race and class politics um, but uh, what I what I really love most about this book is is um, she just takes on so many of what we consider to be like omnipresent acknowledgments or like common sense, not just that part that I shared about sexual orientation, but also gender identity, also about marriage, which for most of human history had nothing to do with love or sex, about childbearing, the politics of pleasure. Um, Oh, I'm so fascinated by her talking about the evolution of dating habits and like what a relatively new phenomenon or concept dating is and how we make it cool today, but it really like, it was very quickly commodified and made consumerist dating as the man uh, pays for the experiences um, and then and the woman pays to make herself conventionally beautiful for the male gaze and that um, you know when when the beauty industry started uh, popping up all around basically like the invention of dating so that can be a cool freedom thing but it also um, also is really complex in that consumerist way and I mean I, I've thought about all this stuff a lot before but this book connects the dots in, in more thorough ways than I knew and I think um, I, I So like... better or worse than Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> oh god! Oh god! <laughs> Don't get me started again! <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I guess I was going to talk about it in relationship to Sex at Dawn, which I know a lot of people have read and love. Um, I like yeah. Sex at Dawn, but don't love it because I don't know about evolutionary psychology, and I think it gives a little more credence yeah. to noble, noble savage ideas than uh, than I tend to agree with. But I really appreciate the way that Sex at Dawn kind of shook up, like in a, a little bit of a wider conversation about uh, things that we hold as like sacred or obvious like may not be and I think that this book does that but maybe even more effectively um, and it's talking really just an analysis of the past couple hundred years of history of of, of these things that we consider normal Ruby. in society and it just it just rocked my world and I hope that I, I can't cool. endorse it highly enough and hope that a lot of people read it and Cool. Well, St- Stephanie, I th- I think a lot of what you're talk what you're referring to there from a therapist's perspective in terms of where therapists go wrong and where they could really learn from these books that were that you mentioned is kind of in in the in the the definition and the con- the the conceptualization of intimacy. Hmm. You know, um, as you said. Modern marriages, um, in terms of marrying for love and and so on and so forth, is kind of a very new idea. Most people just got together because it was, um, you know, they needed to have more kids to help out with the farm Mm -hmm. or, you know, for some other economic reasons. And we live in a much more atomized and alienated kind of environment where families don't live together and so on. And so there's this kind of pressure to that the one person that we're with is supposed to fulfill all of our needs and that they're going to love us and they're going to do this and that and all that. And and that feeds into this kind of, I think, very um, 
uh, wrong and um, kind of imaginary, fantastical idea of intimacy, you know, um, if we feel like we want to get some of our needs met outside of that one relationship, then you, I mean, I'll find you a number of therapists that will tell you you have an intimacy problem, you know, Mm. (laughs) right? If you, if you, if you feel that, you know, there's more to life than just eye gazing at each other and you want to try some role play, I'll find you a dozen therapists that'll tell you you have an intimacy problem. So I think that our idea, and I think it's being kind of also pushed by the kind of therapy world is this kind of really abstract and overdone idea of what intimacy is and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we're so alienated um, that most people just maybe live with their significant other and a handful of friends and so there's a lot of pressure that that person's supposed to be your one and only and your everything yeah, and recognizing and that think, that's such a recent phenomenon as an idea even. yes yes and so, I, just to say that we don't need to pathologize the fact that there are many people, most, 100% of people, who find it impossible to get all of their needs met by one single person, and that's not an intimacy problem. Mm-hmm. Rad. Rad. Is there something particularly that you wanted to endorse <laughs> or rant about? Um? Well, I'll just endorse you know, finding really good resources for education. Um, what you, you know, we're talking about books. I think there's a lot of really good um, stuff out there that's very intellectual and really approaches the things that we're talking about from a very um, kind of sophisticated um, and thoughtful way. And here in New York, I'll recommend one particular educator, which who I find to be very outstanding. His name is Eric Pride. You can look at his website, ericpride.com. He he writes. He does like he does. Um, he does presentations and workshops. He probably has thirty different workshops that he does. But he approaches alternative relationships from a very thoughtful, intellectual, and sophisticated way. He talks about getting involved in relationships, getting out of relationships, structuring relationships. You know, getting different needs met within relationships. And so, I think anyone who's based in New York can come out and see him talk. I think he's. He's brilliant. Is that Pride, P-R-I-D-E? Eric Pride, P-R-I-D-E, right. And I think his website is just ericpride.com. But people like him. We need more people like him who are spokespeople, who are very intelligent, very thoughtful, and present these kinds of concepts in a way that is not sensationalistic and that really presents it in a way that really um, raises the level of discourse. Right. Okay. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. So that's it for episode seven proper. Thank you so much to Dr. Michael Aaron and to Owen O'Malley, our awesome mix engineer, and to all of you for being in conversation with us. And word on our next episode, we have amazing pretty much a superhuman cole park who's also a friend of mine um she worked with soul force for many years with um uh organizing between queer communities and communities of faith and right now she works at this think tank called political resource associates in boston where she's concentrating on tracking right-wing evangelical christians in the u.s and the role that they play in the exportation of politicized homophobia and transphobia around the world and um she's just doing all kinds of noble work to move toward creating a safer and more just world for everybody and I'm so thrilled to know her and so thrilled that she'll be joining us next time. Awesome. Yeah. It also sounds like a pretty good opportunity for us to continue to think up more Bible pickup lines. <laughs> Is there ever a time that's not a pretty good opportunity for that? No. Well, we're also <laughs> going to expand extend our crowdsource question to that one. So just as a reminder, what our crowdsource question yeah. is, um, is uh, 
I'm a straight guy, 27 years old, and I'm crazy about my girlfriend of two years. We have awesome chemistry, and for the most part, the sex is great, but she gets really uncomfortable when I go down on her, like she doesn't trust that I'm having fun, which I totally am. How can I help her open up to it? So, um, yeah, write us in about that. Uh, call us, because as you recall, we have telephone. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, our phone number is uh, 662-626-SFSP. Once again, that's uh, 662-626-SFSP. Um, you can leave us a message and we'll listen to it like your actual human voice. <laughs> Absolutely. So thanks again and we'll see you next time. Rock on. Bye. Two-person dance parties are the sexiest. Edward Snowden is the sexiest. <laughs> uh, the American Healthcare Act is the sexiest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yay.